Brought to you by Business Fights Poverty. Hello and welcome to Business Fights Poverty Spotlight Interviews. I am Katie Heisen, Director of Thought Leadership. Each week, these interviews provide you with the insights from a different perspective of Business Fight Poverty Network, giving you first-hand understanding of how businesses and others are working on some of the world's biggest social challenges. Today, I'm really privileged to be joined by Cass Sunstein. The title of university professor is bestowed on less than 30 people at Harvard University. Cass Sunstein is one of them. His distinguished career has seen him as the administrator of the White House's Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs during the Obama administration, 2009 to 2012. He regularly testifies before congressional committees on many subjects, and he has been involved in constitution-making and law reform activities in a number of nations. His writing is prolific. Professor Sunstein has published nearly a book a year since 2001. Books such as Republic.com, Risk and Reason, Why Societies Need Dissent, and the one I know him best for, Nudge, Improving Decisions About Health, Wealth and Happiness, which he wrote with Richard H. Dahlia in 2008. Today, Professor Sunstein is the founder and director of the Programme on Behavioural Economics and Public Policy at the Harvard Law School. Professor Sunstein, welcome. A pleasure to be here. Could you perhaps first explain what behavioral economics is and perhaps its implications? Well, behavioral economics is an effort to do economics with uh, reference to how human beings actually behave. So non-behavioral economics is sometimes called by its practitioners neoclassical economics, which assumes human rationality, meaning that we are good calculators, that we respond to risk in a pretty sensible way, that we run numbers, that we engage in quantification, even if it's sometimes informal and fast, it's still rational. And what behavioral economists say is, well, let's look what human beings actually do, and let's look at how they actually think. And we learn, for example, that people are present biased, which means they focus on today and tomorrow, not so much next year that people are often uh, not very good at assessing risk. They think about whether an event comes readily to mind, which means if they can think of a case where people got sick or lost money, that will assume a lot of salience in their minds, which might mean that they will exaggerate a risk. And if they can't think of an example, they will underplay a risk and sometimes get themselves into big trouble. We know that on average, 80% of people are unrealistically optimistic. That's probably good because it keeps smiles on our faces and efforts proceeding. But if people don't think of risk so well, if they are focused on today and not the long term, and if they're unrealistically optimistic, they can make mistakes. They can depart from perfect rationality. And behavioral economists use ideas of this kind in order to make predictions about what people are going to do, and also in order to make prescriptions about how to keep individuals and companies out of trouble and with luck, out of poverty. And so I understand that you're currently working on group decision-making. It's such an interesting geopolitical time. What should we know about this topic? Well, there are a couple of things. One is that groups often aggravate the mistakes of their individual members. So if individuals in a group tend to be unrealistically optimistic, then groups can be really too optimistic. And this is called the planning fallacy. 
where individuals might think, you know, I, I have two months to do a project, I'll make that. And the fallacy is that people are often mistaken in thinking it's going to take two months. Businesses often make mistakes in this direction. They think their plans will work out more perfectly than they actually do. And groups are especially prone to the planning fallacy. They're too optimistic. So we know that the behavioral biases that people are subject to often are worse in groups. We also know that groups often do less good of a job than they should at eliciting the information that their members actually have. So I was privileged to work in the White House under President Obama. I saw close up when things were working well, there was a pretty sustained effort to make sure that everyone who had some information got to have their say and have some input. And when things worked less well, people silenced their doubts and their skepticism. And they didn't offer the information they had because they thought, well, I'm low on the totem pole or the bosses in the White House seem to have more information than I do, or I don't want to do something that makes them look bad in the face of my own disagreement. They look a little bad in the group and I don't want to do that to my boss. So that can lead groups in very not good directions if we have self-silencing on the part of people who are deferential to either the majority or the leaders in a group. For those who are listening to this podcast today and perhaps in business or working with their partners, what do you see as the most important topics that they should be aware of? It's not an easy question to answer in the abstract because businesses have so many things that are important to them. So I think first and foremost, what is the business's own goals? And the obstacle to achieving those goals probably is internal. It's probably that either the group is not processing information well, that they're too optimistic, that they're not focused enough on the long term, that they're not focused if it's a large company, particularly on the well-being of their employees. And the well-being of their employees matters both because we should be concerned about our fellow citizens, and also because if employees are having a good time, other things being equal, they're going to be more productive. And so to focus on the human realities of performance in a way that is uh, behaviorally informed, and there's a lot to say about what that particularly means, but that's probably kind of the most important daily thing to focus on. Climate change is obviously something that businesses need increasingly to worry about because they can affect the bottom line a lot. And that means to focus on such policies as businesses have been put into is a good idea. And also to build resilience against the coming risks. We're seeing this particularly in Australia, where the risks are very severe. And it's hard to build resilience against fires, but you can do some of that. And there are things that are kind of metaphorically fires meaning it's going to get hotter, that are things you can build resilience against. Businesses also, I think, should be thinking kind of in the large about sustainability, which means, of course, under the UN Sustainable Development Goals, uh, relief of poverty, water quality, air quality, sex equality, a lot of words ending with the syllables quality. And these are things which are important to businesses, both because they can affect economic growth for businesses, and also because they're the right thing to do. 
And if you have a little extra money to use them in a way that is in the social interest, can be economically beneficial. And even if it's not beneficial economically, it's the right thing to do. And as per the title, perhaps, of this podcast series, Business Fights Poverty, but also something you just mentioned around climate change, we see that global CEOs are ranking climate change as the biggest threat to businesses. But it's perhaps taken Greta Thunberg leading 6 million people in 2019 to strike for climate on one day to generate a sort of feeling of real action. From the research and insight that you have worked on, and I'm thinking particularly about your kind of nudge work, your nudge theory, what would be your advice to change makers within businesses in order to continue the momentum to engage people around climate change or indeed around other societal issues? I was lucky enough, you know, to work on climate change in our government. And in that position, I worked closely with European counterparts on issues that include climate change. So there's a regulatory cooperation council, which involves Europe and the United States, that thinks a lot about climate change, more so under President Obama than under President Trump, but still it's a priority issue in important domains in multiple nations in North America and Europe, of course. And the thing to think about there, I think, is the full assortment of tools that can be used and are being used to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. And while the protests are you know, very much in the news and they create a headline, I, I think we've exaggerated their importance in getting businesses to change compared to other things, including the day-to-day thought that, you know, we only have one planet and we only have one atmosphere and it's doable to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. And you can do this in ways that are small, but in the aggregate can add up. If you run a hotel, you can reduce energy use, which reduces greenhouse gas emissions by, for example, telling hotel Uh, visitors, we're only going to wash your sheets or your towels every two days or every three days, unless you want us to do it every day, then we'll do that. And that shifting the default amount of uh, washing, uh, that's a nudge. And that can have a big aggregate impact on energy consumption. You can make very clear to people who are deciding what car to buy, that some cars are better for the environment than others. And if you're just using information and moral suasion, then we're talking about a nudge. And countries all over the world are doing this, and the impact in the aggregate, again, is not small. We can go beyond a nudge, which consists of something like a GPS device where you give information or you change what happens if people don't do anything, as in automatic enrollment in green energy. That's something that can produce a very large impact in reducing greenhouse gas emissions. For business, you can just choose solar or wind as your energy provider. And that, if it requires affirmative choice, it can be pretty easy. It's profoundly to be hoped that it's easy. Or you can use carbon offsets for your, you can make a commitment, we're going to be net zero in the next year. And for business to commit to net zero, that's dramatic. And it's actually doable given the range of offsets and the opportunity for energy reduction strategies. Here's a tiny thing. Make all your printers default set to double-sided rather than single-sided printing. That saves a lot of paper. It reduces the environmental impact. It's not going to you know, eliminate climate change, but uh, President Obama has a phrase, 
which he used in the White House a lot, which is better is good. And the climate change problem is so large that it's tempting to think anything I can do is small. And that's usually true for small companies and individuals, at least. But better is good. And a contribution in the direction of better also sends a signal to others if it's publicized. And that net zero idea can be an aspiration that could do a great deal to reduce warming by, let's say, 2100. Professor Sunstein, we're also really keen to understand and know the person a little bit better. So a couple of questions, if you don't mind, about you. My first really is, what's motivating the course of your work and your career? Thank you for that. I think it's a combination of two things. The first is curiosity, and the second is a sense that if there's something one can do that can be helpful, that's a blessing. So I was at the University of Chicago for many years. That was where I kind of got my formal education after my technically formal education as a college student and in law school. I started at Chicago as a youngster. And Chicago is a place where people believed that human beings are rational, they are rational actors, and that that is basically a bumper sticker that should lead your professional life. And some of them ended up with Nobel Prizes. Uh, A lot of them actually ended up with Nobel Prizes, pressing rationality. But I noticed a lot of them were lamenting their own investment choices on the tennis court. They would make poor decisions hitting topspins they had no business trying, and they were sometimes in the midst of divorce, so they didn't seem fully rational. And that puzzled me to think their proclaiming human rationality was inconsistent with their own behavior. And that got me intrigued by psychological work on departures from rationality. And I want to put the word intrigued in bold letters and with a really large font. So I was a bit on fire with that material thinking, can we not just observe departures from rationality, but also get really serious in thinking about what they specifically are? And I find these departures, you know, the fact that people are unrealistically optimistic, that they hate losses, they hate losses a lot more than they like equivalent gains, that people are sometimes treating the year after next as if it doesn't matter, as if the person, that is, they themselves, who are experiencing the future aren't even themselves, like they're a stranger, they don't care about them, but they're them. I find this intriguing. And the thought that we can combine an accurate understanding of how human beings act with policies that businesses can adopt, lawyers can adopt, law firms can adopt, nonprofits can adopt, governments can adopt, that seemed to me at an early stage uh, thrilling, both because it's intellectually completely fascinating, and also because it has a practical payoff that could actually affect what happens in the world. And Professor Sunstein, for those aspiring to be successful, hopefully, academics and influencers, what would be your advice to them? I think the simplest is know something about something. So Being successful is one of those things like falling asleep that's usually a byproduct of something else. So if you think, I'm going to try to fall asleep tonight, you're probably going to stay up a lot if you think I'm going to try to be successful. That's a less productive uh, thought for that very goal than thinking, I'm going to learn about, and it could be I'm going to learn about poverty reduction, or I'm going to learn about 
a particular initiative that some businesses has have adopted that have helped them to grow. Or I'm going to learn something about how to prevent mass atrocities. Or, and this is a slightly different angle, I'm going to think of something that I really enjoy doing. This is complimentary, I hope, to know something about something. Think of something you are really enlivened by and you feel once you're engaged in it that you don't want to stop. That's, that's a clue that you're on a good track. Well, Professor Cass Sunstein, thank you very much for your time today and for sharing your wisdom with us. Thank you. A great pleasure. And if you like what you've heard today, please do rate and subscribe to us. I would also love to hear your feedback. So please do drop me a line at any time. I'm Katie at businessfightspoverty.org. Many thanks. Brought to you by Business Fights Poverty. Business Fights Poverty.